From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, why can't Kevin McCarthy clinch the speakership? Also, simultaneous labor strikes all over Britain. David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee on those spots on the globe that most merit attention. Then Art Spiegelman, the creator of Mouse, on what drives his drawing through these times. It's important to me that that form of Never Again keep memory alive, not just in terms of the smokestacks of Auschwitz, is an urgent business. And yet it feels much more easily thwarted than before. And the kids in the hall back together so many years after they began. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, December 17, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The infrastructure of Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv, and three other major urban areas are struggling after a major Russian assault yesterday. Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Kriviri also were hard hit. At least three people were killed. A federal appeals court has denied a last-minute attempt to extend the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42. NPR's Joel Rose reports that those restrictions are still on track to end next week. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed an emergency request to block a lower court ruling that found Title 42 unlawful. The policy, first put in place by the Trump administration, has allowed immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum. The Biden administration says it's preparing for the restrictions to end on December 21st, at a time when border apprehensions are already near record highs. The appeals court's order is a setback for Republican attorneys general from 19 states who are trying to extend Title 42. The court found they waited too long to intervene in the case. An appeal to the Supreme Court may be next. Joel Rose, NPR News. Some, but not all, journalists whose Twitter accounts were suspended earlier in the week by the social media platform CEO are getting their Twitter voices back. NPR's Amy Held reports Elon Musk took the step after a Twitter poll and much intense criticism. The people have spoken, Musk tweeted early Saturday Eastern time. He was referencing a Twitter poll in which a majority of respondents said the accounts should be unsuspended now rather than in a week. So several journalists with The New York Times, CNN and others are back on Twitter. Though Musk accuses them of doxing or endangering him by publicizing his whereabouts. They had tweeted about an account putting out the publicly available flight data for Musk's private jet. But at least one journalist with Business Insider who has reported critically about Musk was still suspended. Musk has championed himself as a free speech advocate, but the UN was among those pointing out his silencing of journalists on the platform sets a dangerous precedent. Amy Held, NPR News. Unionized Starbucks workers in San Antonio are participating in a national three-day strike involving around 100 stores. Josh Peck of Texas Public Radio reports. Saya Wayment, a union organizer at the Starbucks in downtown San Antonio, said the company has been using worker safety concerns as a pretext to close union stores. They claim managers at their own store have tried to do the same. They use the breaches like concern for their own and their customer's safety to get them to give them evidence. And none of the breaches were like, our store is too unsafe to be open. They just wanted some help addressing their like concerns. A Starbucks representative denied claims that union stores are being targeted for closure and said Starbucks Workers United, which represents the union stores, was spreading misleading claims. I'm Josh Peck in San Antonio. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Governor-elect Maura Healey says she is busy with meetings and appointments as she prepares to take office next month. In her first interview with local media since the election, Healey spoke to WBUR's Anthony Brooks about her plans as governor. Healy's first job is to fill out her team. On Friday, she named Pat Tutwiler, a former high school principal who served as superintendent of Lynn Public Schools, as her secretary of education. Healy told WBUR she's also looking forward to making good on a long list of campaign promises, from creating a green technology corridor to making life more affordable in Massachusetts. I want Massachusetts to be a place where if you're born here, you can stay here with endless opportunity. Most immediately, though, we've got to focus on affordability, and that means driving down the cost of housing by increasing housing production. Healy says she also wants to make the state a place where businesses can thrive. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. A bill to allow candidates to use campaign funds to pay for child care is moving through the state house. Senate President Karen Spilka says running for office is more complicated for working parents, especially women who face the added costs of childcare. The measure now moves to the house. A Rhode Island judge has denied a preliminary injunction sought against Governor Dan McKee's order to clear a homeless encampment on the state house grounds in Providence. The Boston Globe reports the judge based his decision on the state's ban on overnight use of state house grounds. The governor's office says his administration has housed most of those who had been staying on the state house grounds. As Christmas approaches, today marks some postal service deadlines for mailed letters and packages to get to their destinations before that holiday. The U.S. Postal Service says it's ground service, first-class mail service, including greeting cards and first-class packages under a pound, must be shipped by today. It is 35 degrees in Boston, some rain around, mainly this morning, a few snow flurries around as well. Clouds today and highs in the low 40s. WBUR supporters include Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for joining us. Republicans won a majority of seats in the House of Representatives, but they can't agree on who they'll make Speaker of the House. The party's current leader, Kevin McCarthy, still hasn't sewn up the votes. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Now, remind us why Kevin McCarthy uh, really can't lose the vote of a single Republican if he's going to be Speaker. Well, the whole House votes for the Speaker, unlike any other elected party leader in Congress. And he's going to need a majority of lawmakers present and voting to win. So if the full 435 members of the House are there, the magic number is 218. But that number can change depending on who shows up to vote. Now, that does mean he can only lose four Republicans and still win a majority to become Speaker. And if you recall, after the November election, 31 Republicans in a secret ballot voted for someone else. And already five Republicans are publicly out against him. So he's got work to do. Um, you know, the vast majority of lawmakers support McCarthy. Many of them were wearing buttons around the Capitol this week that said, OK, only Kevin. They won't vote for anyone else. 
But don't expect Democrats to do McCarthy any favors here. No one's going to cross the party aisle and vote for him. This is really seen as a test of party loyalty. And even McCarthy allies say there's a possibility it could go to multiple rounds of ballots. It's not unprecedented, but it's very rare, and it hasn't happened in 100 years. What are the arguments that uh, those 31 Republicans who voted against him make against Kevin McCarthy? Well, I think some people on the far right will never be satisfied with McCarthy, uh, that they don't see him as one of their own. For example, Matt Gates of Florida has essentially said he'll never vote for him. A lot of these folks are just doing it as leverage, that they want to extract something out of him. It's not unusual to see members try to use it to get something like a committee assignment. There's also a block of conservatives that want to pressure McCarthy to agree to change the House rules to make it easier for any member to bring up a motion that could force the speaker out of power in the middle of a session. Now, doing that would essentially make the speaker incredibly weak, uh, especially in a narrow majority like the one he's facing. And there's an equally large or large larger block of Republicans who are saying, absolutely, don't change those rules. And a lot of this sort of seems like capital intrigue, but it has a really practical effect on how the government functions. Nothing can happen in the House until a speaker is sworn in. It's the first order of business in a new Congress. You can't even swear in other lawmakers until there is an elected speaker. Looks like there's a federal budget for next year, or at least uh, the remaining nine months of the fiscal year, at least a framework for a budget. What's in it? don't know the total cost yet, but it's going to be about one and a half trillion dollars. One thing we do know that's in it, it's got about 16 billion dollars in earmarks for lawmaker projects. They returned last year after a decade-long ban. I mean, good government groups do not like earmarks. They think they are rife for corruption, but Congress has decided that they are helpful for getting things done, and they might have a point here. Um, if approved, as you said, everything will keep running until the end of next September, and it would give Kevin McCarthy, should he be speaker, some breathing room before he has to confront the possibility of a government shutdown on his own. House January 6th committee uh, is expected to release its final report Monday. Do we know if it will recommend that the Justice Department seek criminal charges against former President Trump? It seems certain to. Already in a March court filing, the committee said Trump illegally obstructed an official proceeding, that being Congress's counting of the Electoral College votes on January 6th. That is a crime. The committee added in that filing that Trump also engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's also a crime. Now, um, as we've said many times, these referrals don't have the force of law. The Justice Department decides who and what to prosecute, but they are already investigating the former president. But it would put the House of Representatives on the record accusing the former president of crimes against the government. And I don't think that's an insignificant moment in terms of the historical record. And parapolitical correspondent Susan Davis, thanks so much. You're welcome. Do you dream of a white Christmas? What about a pink one? In some western states, snow at high elevations is turning pink. Researchers are trying to figure out why. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, Aisha digs into the living snow study and the hiker, skiers, and citizen scientists keeping their eyes on that snow. You can listen live at this station's website or at npr.org. The United Kingdom is contending with a series of labor strikes. Nurses, rail engineers, postal workers, they've all walked off the job. More strikes are scheduled for next week and over Christmas. Reporter Willem Marks is based in London and joins us. Willem, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me, Scott. So what's it like to be there now? What's the effect of these strikes? Well, if you are trying to access hospitals over the past week, it's been quite a challenging time, certainly for parents with young children that may have been unwell. You've had nurses across England, Wales and Northern Ireland, meaning that non-urgent hospital care was put on hold uh, for several days. The nursing union agreed with the country's National Health Service they would step in, though, if needed, to save lives. Then you've got the rail engineers and other rail workers. They've been on strike. That's meant the vast majority of England's trains have not run yesterday or indeed will not run today. Some major routes have seen no service at all. Others have seen a skeletal timetable. And the biggest rail union is planning strikes on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, which could severely mm. disrupt holiday plans for many people. That's not to mention the postal workers who've announced seven strike days this month, as well as bus drivers, border force agents, and indeed ambulance drivers. And why so many different workers on strike at the same time? Well, Scott, the simple answer is inflation. You know, wages are not keeping up with the very high rates of inflation in the UK. Given the tight labour market, employees and the unions that represent them have leverage to demand either better pay or insist on retaining working conditions or improving them. On the railways in particular, unions are insisting this is about safety and about maintaining schedules, while nurses and ambulance drivers are saying their systems are already overstretched and patients will continue to suffer the consequences if higher pay is not introduced, essentially to encourage better recruitment and indeed retention. How's the government reacted so far? Well, across the board in the UK, there's been quite remarkable support for these striking workers, particularly the nurses. And that sympathy makes this a politically quite perilous situation for the Conservative government of Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, particularly in light of his party's perceived mismanagement of the British economy this year. In terms of their specific reaction, some ministers have got involved directly in negotiations between workers and their employees at times. But Ultimately, the message has been that however difficult these circumstances may be for these workers and however important their roles might be, there's simply not enough budget around to spare for the billions in higher public sector wages that would be needed to keep up with that currently high inflation rate. And Willem, what are the prospects of the workers' demands being met given the Sunak government uh, and Britain's finances? Well, there have been a series of pay offers that some types of workers have already accepted, for instance, on the, the Eurostar trains to Europe, as well as some of the ground handlers at London's Heathrow Airport. But a lot of other workers, teachers, civil servants, medical professionals who rely on the government to increase their pay levels are finding that, as you sort of allude to there, the Conservative government, with all its financial difficulties this year, is taking a rather hard line on offering wage increases that might match or exceed those inflation levels. Willa Marks in London, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You could get a glimpse of Walking Man almost any day in Chicago, a tall, lean man with long, bushy hair, sharp features, and a wide mustache who wore a blazer to stride more than stroll along downtown streets and bridges. Walking Man once peddled jewelry, then made his life on the streets after he lost his rented room a decade ago. But he was never seen to hold his hand out and ask for money or food. What he mostly did was walk. And walk. Up this street, across diagonal, and back down. David Jones, who tried to make a documentary film about Walking Man, told the Chicago Sun-Times, There didn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to us, but to him, I think it made perfect sense. Walking man, whose given name was Joseph Cromellis, died this week at the age of 75 of injuries he suffered back in May. He was asleep under blankets on a street below a downtown bridge. A man poured a flammable liquid over him and started a fire. 
The man told police he was angry and didn't know there was a human bundled up below the blankets. He's been charged. Joseph Cremellis had also been attacked in 2016 by a man with a baseball bat on a street below another bridge nearby. As attacks may remind us of the dangers of life on the streets, cold hunger and fear, and the challenge just to sleep safely for a little while. Joseph Cromellis had family in small-town Michigan who say they tried to persuade him to stay with them, but he chose to live on his own as walking man. There's nothing wrong with him, his sister-in-law, Linda Cromellis, told the Sun-Times in 2016. He's not mentally ill. He just likes walking. It's that simple. He had spirit, Scott Marvel told us. He runs a video production company and organized fundraising efforts to help walking man with medical bills after his attacks. There are people who live outside the normal path of society, he said, and they deserve our respect, dignity, and compassion. It may be a natural reflex of the heart to feel pity for Joseph Cremellis, but everything I saw in his stride, the times I glimpsed him strutting across the Michigan Avenue Bridge, looking poised, urbane, and elegant, tells me that walking man would prefer to be remembered for making his own way through life. He cut a vivid figure against a great skyline. NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Monday at 1, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection holds its final public meeting and makes announcements about criminal referrals to the U.S. Justice Department. Listen live Monday at 1 here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. The Democratic National Committee plans to return campaign contributions from Sam Bankman-Fried, the cryptocurrency exchange CEO who was arrested earlier this week for illegally diverting investor funds. In Lake County, Illinois, prosecutors say the father of Robert Cremo III, charged with killing seven people in a mass shooting at a July 4th parade, has been charged with seven felony counts of reckless conduct for sponsoring his son's gun license application. In Ukraine, one of the biggest attacks yet, as the critical infrastructures of Kyiv, Kharkiv, Zavarizhia, and Kriviri were hit heavy by Russian fire.
I'm Louise Chivoni, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. This time of year is often felt as a season of hope, but there are persisting problems all across the planet and millions of people endangered by hunger, by climate destruction, and threats to democracy and freedom. The International Rescue Committee released its watch list this week of crises that are expected to worsen and to which attention must be paid. David Miliband, President and CEO of the RRC, who of course is a former British Foreign Secretary, joins us from New York. David, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. Please draw our attention to two or three areas that you believe the, uh, the world has to pay particular note to right now. Yeah, the International Rescue Committee's emergency watch list is a really unique resource. It draws on 67 different data sources and on the advice of our staff in 200 field offices around the toughest parts of the world to signal which of the 20 countries most likely to experience humanitarian distress in the next year. Top is Somalia, then Ethiopia, then Afghanistan, then Yemen, then the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those are the top five. And these 20 countries on the watch list represent 90% of total humanitarian need. And you say in the course of this report that there is often next to no attention given to these many countries. And, and my next to no attention is not metaphorical. Just about 1% of media coverage is on these countries. Yes. I mean, obviously, there are problems at home and all politics is local. But this is a connected world today. Risks are global. We learned that in the pandemic. We can learn that from the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And our point is that there's a moral reason why we shouldn't let people starve in Somalia or in Ethiopia when we know we can stop that starvation. But it's also a strategic point that if the world continues to believe that while risks are global, resilience can just be done nation by nation, we're going to fail. You do make the point that there are notes of hope in places like Yemen and Bangladesh. I wonder if I could get you to talk about that. Yes, the ceasefire agreement in Yemen, the climate resilience adaptation in Bangladesh that has prevented thousands of people dying as a result of the cyclones that are hitting that country. And too often, I think in the aid sector, in the charity sector, people focus on suffering. And we want to combat the idea that, quote unquote, nothing can be done. Mm -hmm. It's actually a choice to weaken the guardrails, the, to weaken the protection of civilians in conflict, to fail to uh, address the climate crisis or to adapt to its impacts. And our report, it shows in three key areas how we can turn the tide. One, we have to break the cycle that leads from food insecurity to famine. Second, we have to protect 
civilians better in conflict, and we have a suggestion about how to combat the climate of fear that prevents NGOs and the UN speaking out against governments that are abusing the rights of their own citizens. And thirdly, we have to manage global risks like pandemics, like the climate crisis, in a far more effective way. I want to draw you out a little bit on how the climate of fear can can be combated as far as you're concerned. Yeah, the climate of fear that I'm referring to is that for aid organizations, for UN officials, they're in countries which are very, very sensitive to criticism and where aid is being denied to civilians. We propose, for example, the creation of an independent office for the protection and promotion of humanitarian access that could speak without fear or favor to those governments and non-state actors who are preventing the delivery of aid. Mm. What would you suggest the uh, resources of the world can do to both make migration unnecessary, which is, uh, is often the result of conflict or climate change, and at the same time to, if I might put it this way, unlock the hearts of, uh, of Western nations who some seem increasingly resistant to receiving larger numbers of, uh, of refugees? Well, I think those two questions are connected. The, the first thing to say about migration is that untended humanitarian crisis inevitably leads to the flow of people. No problem that starts in Syria or starts in Ethiopia or starts in Myanmar ends there. In terms of unlocking the hearts, the Pope uh, several years ago spoke about the globalization of indifference. I don't know if one's allowed to argue with the Pope on uh, weekend edition, but my perspective is slightly different. Not a globalization of indifference, but a global feeling about not knowing how to make a difference. And Ukraine is a good example. The humanitarian mm -hmm. and refugee response, just leaving aside the military, the humanitarian and refugee response has set a standard. The world can do it. The question is whether it decides to. David Miliband is president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. We mark our days by sunlight. We naturally wake up in the morning, fall asleep at night because our eyes use light to help tune our body's inner clocks. Next in our science series, Finding Time, Ari Daniel talks to a man who stays in sync with the sun even though he's been blind for years. We'll start in a small one-bedroom apartment about an hour's drive north of Toronto. Oh, I love my sports. I love my Blue Jays. They need me to coach them. They'd be winning, I'll tell you. Every baseball season, 73-year-old Fred Crittenden plants himself in front of his television, where he listens to the games. He doesn't watch them because he can't see. I went blind. I was 35 years uh, young. Crittenden has retinitis pigmentosa, an inherited condition that led to the deterioration of his retinas. He lost all his rods, the cells that help us see in dim light, and all his cones, the cells that let us see color in brighter light. Within a single year, 1985, Crittenden says he went from perfect vision to total blindness. The last thing I saw clearly was my daughter, Sarah. She was five years old then. I used to go in at night and just look at her when she was in the crib, and, and I could just barely still make her out, like her little eyes or her nose or her lips or, her, you know, her chin and that kind of stuff. And even to this day, it's hard. Mm. Over what period of time did you come to terms with it? Took me about a year. And now you don't have any light perception? I have no light perceptions, total darkness. 
Today, over 35 years later, Crittenden manages just fine. There's plenty he doesn't need help with, including syncing up with the 24-hour day-night cycle. Oh, yes, I eat pretty near the same time every day. In the mornings, you know, let's say 8 and 12 and then 5 o'clock at uh, supper time. I love my food. At night, Crittenden listens to sports or his talking book machine. He's asleep by 11 and out of bed every morning about 6.30. No alarm needed. That may not seem remarkable, except that our circadian clocks are deeply influenced by light. If you never saw any light, you would slowly shift your sleep cycle so that you'd start falling asleep later and later. Marla Feller is a neurobiologist at UC Berkeley. But what happens is every day you go out and look at the sun and it entrains this circadian clock to be on a 24-hour cycle. And so we're faced with a mystery. Crittenden is blind. Yeah, told doctors. And yet his internal clock marches to the 24-hour beat of a sunlit world, give or take a few minutes. Crittenden and others like him offer insight into a system in our brains beyond rods and cones that allows certain people who are blind to still use the sun to maintain their internal clocks. Which brings us to Iggy Provencio, a biologist at the University of Virginia who, in grad school in the 90s, was studying the African clawed frog. The frog is really a disgusting-looking animal. It has a very slimy skin. That skin contains cells that darken with pigment when they detect light. Provencio discovered the molecule responsible for the light detection, which he called melanopsin. He found it in the retina of the frogs and of mice, too. We were looking through the microscope, and I told my colleague who was with me, I said, we are the first people in the world to actually view a completely novel sensory system in mammals. Including humans. Now, melanopsin isn't in our rods or cones. Rather, it's inside these big neurons called melanopsin cells, and they're parked in a different layer of the retina. Here's Michael Doe, a neurobiologist at Boston Children's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. Imagine an octopus with its tentacles reaching out. The melanopsin cells, their arms reach out and overlap with the arms of other melanopsin cells to form a mesh over the retina. The entire mesh is sensitive to light. The tentacles of those melanopsin cells, they radiate all over our brains. I think it's something like 30 brain regions are contacted directly by these cells. One place is the structure at the base of the brain that, that is our master circadian clock. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it uses the light information fed to it by melanopsin cells to instruct the rest of our body when it's time to sleep and wake up. Sachin Panda is a chronobiologist at the Salk Institute, and he says there have been lab experiments where mice have had their melanopsin switched off. These mice, they can sense light to some extent, but they take really long time for instance, give them a lab mouse version of jet lag, where one day you suddenly shift when the lights get turned on and shut off. These mice, instead of taking seven days to reset to the new time zone, they will take a month. So that's our mystery solved. Fred Crittenden, our guy near Toronto, has no functioning rods or cones, but he does have melanopsin cells, which allow his brain to use light subconsciously to help synchronize his circadian rhythms, telling his body to start a new day every morning to make sure he's awake when Sarah, his daughter, who's 42 now, gives him a call. She usually calls me every other day, see how I'm doing and that kind of stuff. She's a good girl. When we spoke, Crittenden had a photo of Sarah in his apartment, 
in it, she's smiling. The photo was hanging in his bedroom opposite the window. And on a clear day, a shaft of sunlight would flash through that window and light up Sarah's face. Ari Daniel, NPR News. And a version of this story premiered during a live show at the Charles Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Science in Boston. Morocco and Croatia play for third place in the World Cup today. And, you know, this side of Dubrovnik, there's probably no better place for Croatia fans to watch the contest than in a church basement in Kansas City, Kansas. That's where Frank Morris of member station KCOR watched another Croatia match earlier this week when the team played Argentina. On a hill overlooking where the stockyards and packing houses used to be, there's an old brick Catholic church with a Croatian flag flapping in the cold wind. In the basement, there's a terrific party. Every time Croatia plays in the World Cup, fans like Mario Viscovic flood St. John's Christian Club, dressed head to toe in the flag's red and white check. I think I'm ready, right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. yeah. Face painting and all, red and white checkers, the shirt, the hat, everything. Viscovic moved here after fighting in Croatia's war for independence. I'm here only 22 years, but I feel like I've grown up here. This is my home. Oh my God, this is going to be awesome. Just watch how we party. It's early, but lots of people packed in here are drinking big Croatian beers from the bar. Better still, homemade hooch, like the stuff Joe Barich is pouring from a huge glass jug. We use Moscato grapes, put them in a barrel for 21 to 30 days. We take it out of the barrel and distill it. That's guapa. Do you want to try some? When Croatia fans at the game in Qatar come on the TV screens, they look just like the people standing in this basement. Nick Thomasing, tending bar, is third generation at this club and this church. This is not just sport, it's a mixture of family, community, religion, you know, all of those things wrapped into one. And at the half, there's more singing, regardless of the score. Goran Georgievich literally thumps his chest with pride for his scrappy team and the tiny country that fields it. Croatian soccer, it's the heart. We are always the underdogs. We're only four million. We're only four million, but we have a big heart. And you could say the same for this tight little Croatian community here in Kansas City, Kansas. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. to Weekend Edition from NPR News. While you were distracted by serious things, board games have undergone a renaissance. Even before the pandemic, more than 4,000 new games coming out each year, published by dozens of small companies in an industry where just a few Hasbros and Parker Brothers once succeeded. Abram Toll joins us. He's the creative director of the Nerds on Earth website. They review board games. He joins us from Milwaukee. Mr. Toll, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. 
What do you think accounts for the growth of board games? Well, I think a lot of it is the fact that we're living in this increasingly digital world. You know, we have screens everywhere. We've got TV, movies, video games, and board games really give us that analog entertainment in a social setting. So it allows us to have something tangible to play while really enjoying the the company of family and friends. Have the nature of board games been changing? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's sort of like craft beer, right? <laughs> you know, you start with the classics, your Monopolies, your Connect Fours. Those are great. But as people play those, you know, they found that they wanted something a little off palette. And so you have all of these different, you know, board game mechanics coming out, publishers coming to the scene, and people want to play them. I mean, everything's a little bit different, and uh, it's it's great to see sort of this rise in board games. Well, what kind of new board games? One of the most popular games uh, right now is is Wingspan, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, but it's a game about birds, and you would never really think that that would be something that people grasp onto. But it's got an educational element to it. You're playing birds into different habitats, scoring points. And it's completely different than something like Monopoly, where you just roll dice and move around a board. We also really like uh, Turing Machine, which is brand new this year. And it's a competitive deduction game. So you're trying to guess a three-digit code using punch cards, very similar to like those uh, original old-school punch card computers. You know, think of Alan Turing. The game is apparently named after Alan Turing, of course, who broke the code during World War II. Right. And you're, you're plugging in these logic suggestions, like is, is this third digit, is it even or odd? Or is, you know, the second digit greater than the first digit? And so... You know, it's, it's taking this puzzle aspect and turning it into a board game. And that one's really taken the board game world by storm. In your experience, is it sometimes hard to interest young people in, in games that don't have any moving images on a video screen? <laughs> it, it can be a challenge. Um, I think the key is to try and appeal to what people are interested in. So if you know a person uh, is really into national parks, for example, they love the outdoors, you're finding a game that's really approachable and accessible for them, such as Parks, uh, published by Keymaster Games. If you can find something that people uh, really enjoy, you know that's automatically going to spark their interest, and that's your in for getting them into board games. What happens when you um, meet people and tell them that you're a board game maven? A lot of times they ask, "What's that all entail? You know, what what does that mean?" Are publishers just giving you games? Are you just buying games? I mean, I don't even want to show you my, my board game shelf and how packed it is. But it's just great because it's something that I can share with them and, and try to get them interested in games and say, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, the Monopolies and the Connect Fours, that that's what board games are right now. But it's evolved so much beyond that. And so to kind of get them on that path and, and see, wow, it really is a pretty big world of board games out there. Abram Toll uh, from Nerds on Earth. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The number of flu cases remains very high across Massachusetts. The State Department of Public Health's latest report shows more than 7,500 people had confirmed cases of the flu last week. That's compared with 5,500 the week before. Less than 40% of the state's population have received flu shots this season. 
As of this morning, ski train season has returned to Massachusetts. The train, operated by the MBTA and the commuter rail, connects North Station in Boston with the Wachusett Mountain Ski Area. Each ski train has a specially modified coach with racks for ski and snowboard equipment. The train is running on weekends through March 12th, and early next month, the ski train also starts operating on Wednesdays. It is 36 degrees in Boston, some rain around this morning, then cloudy and highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com Nostalgia is a powerful political tool, but what happens when that wistful longing is for a past that never even existed? You are manipulating people's sense of the past in order to catastrophize about the future so that they will justify anything you want to do in the name of protecting them from that. The hazards of yearning for yesteryears on the next On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Breakdowns has been published before, almost 45 years ago. It's been republished a couple of times, and now once again. It is Art Spiegelman's large-format graphic album of experimental comics about his early years, his parents' lives, and a death, and the first stirrings and sightings of work would change what comics can mean. And Art Spiegelman, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1992 graphic novel, Mouse, and this year was honored with the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, joins us now. Art, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. On an early page, we see your mother telling a young Artie, maybe it's better not to be a genius. Geniuses lead such troubled lives. How did she know that? I'm not sure if she did, except I think it was part of the very complex messaging I was given as a kid. On the one hand, I expect you to be a genius. It's the least you could do if I survived World War II and hatched you. And on the other hand, you're already such a mess. Be careful about pursuing your geniushood. There's some kind of double bind messaging in there. The war and how your parents survived it. Would it be fair to say it steered your own life a lot in ways maybe you recognize now more than you did when you were younger? Well, yeah, especially because of the codicil you put in the sentence, more now than before. Before I was on a kind of automatic pilot following uh, a destiny I didn't know I was following, let's say. When I first started working on what 
is the longer version of Mao's. I was just saying, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I just want to tell a good yarn. And I didn't think of it as having any use value. It wasn't like, I'm going to teach people that they should never do the, such a thing again. Never, never again. It wasn't with carrying that um, moral responsibility it, uh, consciously at all. And it was um, only in more recent very recent years that I thought, you know, gee, it really could happen again. Maybe I was just naive. And now, now I'm sort of grateful that it has an afterlife, that it can function in some way as a way of letting people know what happened and that that's important to know. This could be rough, but of course it's part of breakdowns. Can I get you to talk about that day in 1968, you came home and there was a crowd in front of your home. Yeah, uh, I now understand that to be one of the central traumas of my life. But at the time, I was just coming home and coming home late from having spent a weekend with uh, my girlfriend, who my parents didn't approve of. And it seemed like many people I knew on the block were gathered around the front of this two-family home, as were police cars and an ambulance. And a cousin of mine corralled me and got me away from in front of the front of the house to take me to uh, our family doctor, who was the person who had to explain to me that my mother had just killed herself upstairs. That was the beginning of an event that I kind of suppressed for four years. And it was only several years later, as I mentioned in another one of these little prequel strips, that the book is divided into the strips I actually made between 72 and 78, and strips much made much later in the 2000s, thinking back on my life and what I was doing and why, in a first part of the book called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Blankety Blank, and in one of those, it was very specifically uh, talking about how that memory got recovered while I was yelling at my then girlfriend uh, and realizing she didn't do anything wrong. Why are you yelling at her? And a, a Freudian lightning bolt came down and said, you're yelling at your mother. And all of a sudden, it all uh, almost like the cartoon it was in that few panel strip became a revelation of remembering the very specific events of the days you were conjuring up from that early strip. What made you think and, and see how comics could carry all this emotional freight? Well, what was amazing to me was how ineffective the uh, opposing argument was. When I was really little, that was when the comic book burnings were taking place in America, uh, part of um, a hysteria that involved thinking they caused juvenile delinquency, just like now. Just like now, when we're thinking that uh, there's a hysteria going around these days that will make your child uh, gender conflicted, for example, or that the problems of our racial heritage in America would be too troubling for children to have to carry through their lifetimes. And therefore, those comic books should be put on bonfires and burned, just like the ones that caused nightmares while teaching kids how to become juvenile delinquents and criminals. But I got hold of a bunch of those pre- comic code comics, the ones that had the seal that uh, told you this was approved and therefore could be sold on newsstands. And maybe they were troubling, but I was troubled. And they, what they were was incredibly powerful. I was reading books without pictures, but these images, especially the really great ones published by EC Comics, the Tales from the Crypt comic books and war comics called Two-Fisted Tales that were kind of anti-war war comics by the same man who created MAD, Harvey Kurtzman, and his MAD comics, which were very much anarchic and teaching you to think for yourself and not accept received cultural wisdom. Those indicated to me that comics were 
as vital in what they could offer as whatever I was getting out of the library from the adult room that I wasn't supposedly allowed to take books out from. That they were Kafka could have been writing for the EC Comics if the timing had been different. May uh, may I ask you what you've been filling your mind with recently? This past year has been. Ever since the first book banning, I've been turned into a, a metonym that is responsible for responding to the book bannings that are taking place in America to undermine our educational and library system. And I've lent myself to it, but it left me very, very lost as an artist. I have hardly drawn in the, since last February. And talking to um, whoever needs to talk to me from universities, uh, in one case, a congressional committee that wanted me to come and testify about book banning to setting up a teach-in of sorts, a, a webinar conversation in the county that had banned mouths, thereby very cannily turning it into a bestseller again. And I've just been engaged by that and allowed myself to be because uh, free speech is a complicated issue these days. To me, it was always open and shut. And I had some kind of perhaps naive faith that occasionally plays out as it ought to, which is that conversation followed by more conversation, even if heated, eventually ends up on the side of, um, I don't know, of the angels, that things sorted themselves out in that process. I don't think that's quite true anymore, even though my emotional bias is toward First Amendment fundamentalism. Do you still pick up the pen? I pick it up, but I but it's a very heavy instrument right now, and I'm, I've got little notes and little doodles and drawings. I have no idea what they can come to, and I'm hoping that the pen gets lighter if I get to use it every day and built up my finger muscles, you know? Uh, so I can't give you, oh yeah, I'm hot to trot on this particular book. I may be, but I have to start it to see if, if the trail leads anywhere. Art Spiegelman, his new old book, or maybe it's vice versa, his breakdowns. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, and, and, and thanks for indulging me, Scott. It's been fun talking to you. And if you or someone you know is considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just a few notes from this theme song that's not by B.J. Luderman, who does our theme music, brings back memories. The Kids in the Hall, the Canadian quintuplet of sketch comedy, had to come back earlier this year. Their show ran on CBC TV from 1988 to 1995, and a few American broadcasters. They've also done a movie and stage shows, and last spring returned with a new series on Amazon Prime Video. They may be a little grayer, but still edgy, zany, graphic, even gross, more than 30 years after they started. We spoke to two of the founders of Kids in the Hall, Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald, in May, and asked what it was like to have their whole crew back together. Yeah, there's the phenomenon that kicks in whenever we get together that we stop being aware of the fact that we're old men and we feel like we're all young punks again. Yes, and we usually like together every three or four years, but this time it was a bigger event. It was like a TV show again, but it sort of felt the same with, as you would say, more gray hair. I can't uh, move funny as much as I used to because my knees uh, hurt more. Well, you're plenty funny from what I saw. Um, <laughs> yeah, but when okay. my knees are 100%, man, I'm super funny. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, same thing happened to Bobby Orr. Yeah. Right. He was, yeah, his knees went and he was not funny. Uh, he anymore. was hilarious before the knee went. A lot of people yeah. don't know that he was a comic and uh, uh, a hockey player, yeah. but it, it, thanks for pointing that out. Uh, I want to mention yeah. your fellow troop members, of course, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, and Scott Thompson. Boo! Um, yeah, they're, they're much lesser. Uh, and they have, despite that, done a lot of films and shows and voices uh, over the years and guest shots. Are you all better performers now, do you think? Uh yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think I think we got pretty good in the old show. I, I think we are for sure. Um, uh, Scott was amazing. Dave's always amazing. Mark's always amazing. Um, Bruce is always Bruce. And no, which I mean, he only does what he, the thing that he does. He can't do any better. It's what he does. <laughs> what a generous answer, I think. Um, I want to ask you about a pretty startling continuing sketch in this new series and that's we're going to play a clip motormouth in the morning the weather today is mostly lethal so stay indoors and by indoors we mean underground in a secure bunker or an abandoned mine well enough chitter chatter let's get at her this is motormouth in the morning ready or not here i rock Oh my. Uh, so the premise is the world has suffered a terrible environmental disaster, and to compound that, there's just one record left? There's only one record left, and it is uh, Brand New Key by Melanie. <laughs> and and for my money, if it came down to it, if I could pick one record to listen to for the remainder of humanity's uh, tenure on Earth, that, that would be the one I would oh, pick. Right. There is no more cheerful song in the world. Well, I, I mean, it makes you uh, certainly laugh, but also cringe a bit because it's not it's not quite ridiculous. It's almost plausible, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was I, it was a thing. I, I, I guess I wrote it during the darkest depths of the Trump administration, and it was uh, kind of reflecting that. And just, and, you know, it was just the idea of uh, if everything falls apart, you fall back in on old old habits and patterns to keep yourself sort of some semblance of sanity. I I have read uh, about this new series reports that you almost relish the chance to be potentially offensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think well, we never set out to be offensive. Yes, um, yes. Dave's right, yes. But I guess... We just are! Yeah, but, <laughs> we just yeah, are. The stuff that makes each of us laugh you know, the, the ideas that we think are funny uh, can be offensive to some people, but our, and certainly our intention is never to be offensive. It's to be honest about what we think is silly. And uh, if we did that, we would just be offensive and we would be less funny. That's, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to be funny. Yeah. Let me ask you about a um, sketch in particular. A man in an office wears clown shoes into work. <laughs> And uh, by the way, which once I saw it, I thought I got to get a pair. Um, <laughs> but in any event, he is called in and he is fired for cultural appropriation from Bingo the Clown. A complaint? Yep. About, about what? Well, it's about your shoes, Dan. My shoes? Mm. Well, that's ridiculous. Everybody loves my shoes. No, there's been an anonymous complaint that says your shoes are an example of cultural appropriation. Who made this complaint? I'm not at liberty to say, Dan. It's it's anonymous. Well, I think I need to know. Well, I can't tell you, Dan. Well, I think I deserve to know. Can't tell you. I'd like to know. Can't tell well, you. I think you should tell me. Well, I can't tell you, Dan. Well, I want to know. Well, I can't say. Okay. 
All right. But I think I know who it is. Well, I don't think so. It was bingo, wasn't it? Now, do you, do you risk, um, I don't even want to use a, which, which became almost a cliche, like offending. Do you risk hurting the feelings of people who feel that North American culture has appropriated music, food, fashion, and other items of culture from them? Well, they can be offended, but I think they're mis misunderstanding what culture is. Uh, the culture is something that travels and morphs and mutates and cross-pollinates. May I ask, is there stuff that you dropped? Uh, not by choice, for the most part. <laughs> uh, there were definitely things we had that we weren't able to get past the current regime of censorship. But we took it well and we understood. Yeah. We've always felt like our comedy was, was centered in empathy. Yeah. I don't think we've ever done anything that we consider to be nasty or trying to attack anybody or mock anyone. Are you all friends outside of Kids in the Hall? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, and we're not even lying. Yeah, at the moment. <laughs> there were points in the, <laughs> you never know. There were points in the past when we would have been lying, but... Uh, there are dips, <laughs> but uh, I th hopefully we're old enough that we're past any dip. What's it like to look across the stage or a studio or a set at each other now after all these years and and still be still be churning and working together? It's it's very gratifying um, and comforting and uh, and entertaining, uh, and especially yeah. especially for me doing stuff with Kevin. There really is nobody nobody on earth that I feel more chemistry with and more kind of sort of a psychic connection with than Kevin. And me too. Also, they surprise me all the time. I mean, after all these years, they still surprise me what they say or what they do. <laughs> it keeps it like still young. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and when the five of us are together, I think I, I laugh more when the five of us are together than at any other point in my life. Yes. The pompous thing I always say is we're not the five funniest people in the world, but we're the five funniest people that work together if you forget about Monty Python. And please forget about them, just for the purpose of this story. I don't think I even recognize the name. That's, okay. uh, that's how much I admire what you do. Uh, Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald. Kids in the Hall are back, now on Amazon Prime Video, alongside a new documentary, The Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks. Thank you so much for being with us, gentlemen, if I may call you that. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was uh, amazing. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Searchlight Pictures, presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema. Now playing in select theaters. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing, goodnewsgarage.org. New Art Center in Newton, with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at newartcenter.org. And Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. 
Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Gross wondered about that deal that brought Brittany Griner home. I feel like uh, maybe we could have traded her for someone who wasn't called the Merchant of Death. I'm so glad she's back, but I feel like maybe like an assistant of death <laughs> or like a, I, an ombudsman I mean, of death. Yeah. And Peter Zagel, trade an hour of your time for our news quiz with special guest Andrew Bird. That's this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's I'm NPR I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter, Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Dr. Anthony Fauci reflects in more than 50 years from flu shots to HIV AIDS through COVID and more. Also, are sanctions on Russia working on Russia? World Cup final set for tomorrow, Argentina, France, Messi, Mbappe, and Solva and Lynn Gaspard on closing their family bookstore in London, a vital shop for so many customers from Arab countries. They would come in to the shop and say, where, where are all the band books? <laughs> so we often joke that we should have a band book section. <laughs> and then new music from the French indie band Phoenix. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, December 17, 2022. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. International aid groups are warning of a catastrophic food crisis as Somalia is facing what could be its worst drought in 40 years. NPR's Jason Bobian has more from a displaced persons camp in Mogadishu. Somalia is facing the worst drought it's had in 40 years. Millions of people have been displaced or affected by this food crisis. Many of them are showing up in IDP camps like this one. People here are telling us that they came here because their crops failed at their homes, their livestock died. They came here in hope of getting food aid from international aid organizations. But amongst the people we're talking to here, they say so far they haven't received any food distributions whatsoever. NPR's Jason Bobian at a displaced persons camp on the edge of the Somali capital, Mogadishu. California regulators have approved an aggressive new climate change blueprint for reaching carbon neutrality. From member station KQED, Kevin Stark reports. The climate roadmap calls for slashing emissions and ramping down the state's use of fossil fuels almost entirely. After many months of detailed negotiations, California's Air Board approved the plan in a unanimous vote. Davina Hurt represents the Bay Area on the board. I'm excited in this plan uh, because of the no new gas plants increased reliance on renewable energy sources, building decarb, the targets have been strengthening. The list goes on. A cleaner power grid is central to this plan, which includes a commitment to stop building new gas power plants while quadrupling capacity for wind and solar. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Stark in San Francisco. The Biden administration is beginning to replenish U.S. strategic petroleum reserves used earlier in the year to slow the rise in gasoline prices and fight inflation. The administration says starting in January, the U.S. is buying three million barrels of oil to go into the reserves. The president withdrew 180 million barrels starting in March. 
Jury deliberations have begun in the sentencing of a white former Fort Worth police officer convicted of killing a black woman in her home three years ago. Toluwani Osibamowo of member station KERA reports. A judge gave the jury the option of finding Aaron Dean not guilty or convicting him of either murder or manslaughter for killing a Tatiana Jefferson. Dean was convicted on the lesser charge for shooting Jefferson through a rear window of her home while responding to a call about an open front door. Local activist Therese Jones was at the courthouse after the verdict was read. I don't know what it would take for an officer to really be convicted in Fort Worth for murder. And I, black people are not safe in Fort Worth. Black people are not safe. Dean now faces up to 20 years in prison. I'm Toluwani Osibamolo in Dallas. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The developer of a major wind project off Martha's Vineyard is asking the Department of Public Utilities to stop the review of its Commonwealth wind projects. Avangrid says it is being forced to make the move after utilities refuse to renegotiate contracts on the prices they will pay for the wind power. Kim Harriman is the company's senior vice president for state government affairs. We're going to get this project built. The best path forward that avoids prolonged and protracted litigation, especially when your counterparty is not willing to come to the table, the best way forward is what we did. Avangrid is pulling the contracts it has with utilities and plans to put the project out to bid again. The company says supply chain disruptions, inflation, and rising interest rates are making their current plan so expensive it's no longer viable. Senator Elizabeth Warren is proposing new regulations on cryptocurrency. The Massachusetts Democrat wants action following the collapse of FTX trading. Warren says she thinks cryptocurrency exchanges need to follow the same rules on money laundering as banks and other financial institutions. The dark underbelly of crypto is its critical link to financing terrorism and human trafficking and drug dealing and helping rogue nations like North Korea and Iran. Warren has filed a bill that she says has bipartisan support. More than 50,000 New Hampshire households were left without power this morning following yesterday's storm. Most of the outages are clustered just over the Massachusetts border in the southwest part of New Hampshire. The MBTA commuter rail train connecting North Station with the Wachusett Mountain Ski Area has resumed service today for the season. Each ski train has a specially modified coach with racks for ski and snowboard equipment. In the forecast for the Boston area, some rain around mainly this morning. Clouds today, highs in the low 40s. Lows overnight dropping to the upper 20s. Then you can expect mostly sunny skies tomorrow with Sunday's temperatures in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being with us. The international sanctions imposed on Russia since its invasion of Ukraine are unprecedented, yet the war continues. So are these efforts to damage the Russian economy working? NPR's Jackie Northam reports there are signs they are. The Russian sanctions are wide-ranging, targeting individuals, businesses, imports, exports, and commodities. 
Edward Fishman led the State Department's sanctions policy after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. He says the sanctions are extremely broad in their scope, but were expected to take time to have an impact. They aren't trying to achieve a psychological change in Putin. They're not trying to make Putin wake up in the morning and decide that Ukraine was not worth the effort. What they're really trying to do is just create attrition in Russia's military industrial complex and its economy writ large. Fishman, now with Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, says the international community hit hard shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, zeroing in on Russia's banking system to cut it off from the world. I think in my day, the idea of imposing blocking sanctions on Sparebank, which is by far the largest bank in Russia, was unthinkable, let alone sanctions on the Central Bank of Russia which I would mention is probably the largest sanctions target in modern history, and one that Putin didn't expect would actually come under sanctions. Sanctioning Russia's central bank froze almost half of its $635 billion in foreign reserves. The ruble tumbled. But Alina Rybakova with the Institute of International Finance in Washington says the central bank had spent years putting policies in place to defend its financial system from just this type of scenario. So this fortress Russia strategy, which we also talked about and some people laughed about it in the beginning of the 2022 sanctions, it did prove to be at least partially effective. We were expecting much deeper contraction, myself included. Russia's economy is expected to contract this year by about 3.5% instead of growth that was expected. There would likely be a bigger drop if it wasn't for oil and gas sales, which make up about half of the government's budget. Maria Demertsis is a senior fellow at Bruegel, a Brussels-based economics think tank. Given also the incredible increase in prices of both gas and oil and revenues coming into the Russian authorities, the Russian coffers have been exorbitant. And that, of course, allowed the Russian economy to continue to function. But the outlook for Russian oil and gas revenues could change soon. Putin has already cut off most of the natural gas flows to Europe, its largest customer. And there are new EU bans and a price cap on Russian oil. China and India have been on a buying spree of Russian oil, but at deeply discounted prices. Meanwhile, Russians are seeing their modern economy suffer tangible setbacks. Thousands of international companies have idled operations or pulled out of Russia completely, taking with them capital investment, technology and expertise. Imports have collapsed, which is having an impact on manufacturing in particular. Fishman points to the auto industry. Moscow has had to relax rules to allow domestic cars to be manufactured without airbags and anti-lock brakes because they can't source these components domestically and they used to buy them from Europe and the United States. Russia will also struggle to maintain its fleet of commercial aircraft and trains because of a lack of access to Western components, says Rybakova. Even in the military, Russia is dependent on the foreign-produced chips, for example, and other types of technology. It needs that to continue to wedge the war. Russia is trying to set up alternative supply routes from places like China and Turkey. Demertsis says all this is a drag on the country's economy. She says it's in terrible shape, but... They will survive. They're not going to be eradicated from the world map. But it's going to be a much, much poorer country. And there are still more targets for the international community to sanction. Jackie Northam, NPR News. And now, man who's been a familiar figure to Americans for decades, especially since 2020. 
my message and my final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, <laughs> is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible. Dr. Anthony Fauci leaves government this month after 54 years with the National Institutes of Health. For 38 of those years, he was director at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and he oversaw the government's response to HIV, AIDS, Ebola, swine flu, and of course, COVID-19. Dr. Fauci joins us now. Dr. Fauci, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. Good to be with you. How do you feel about leaving now? Well, you know, it's it's bittersweet. Obviously, you can't be coming onto campus literally every day, including most Saturdays and sometimes Sundays, and then realize you're not going to come back. So there's a sadness to it. But I'm also excited a bit, Scott, about what lies ahead, because, you know, I'm not retiring in the classic sense. Uh, I'm stepping down from government service, but there are some things that I want to do outside of the context of the government that I'm actually looking forward to. You're going to write a memoir? That will probably be part of it, Scott, because what I want to do is write, lecture, and to advise for people who request and require my advice and some possibility of making them benefit for the fact that I've been in a very unusual position, as well as the fact that I've had the privilege of advising seven presidents. So I hope that that experience can be passed on, hopefully the younger generation of scientists and would-be scientists, to inspire them to perhaps get into public service. Let me ask you about serving seven presidents, different administrations. Um, science is supposed to be above politics, but do you need some political skills to do the job you've been doing for so long? Well, I don't know if it's political skills, Scott, rather than an appreciation to stick with the science. And you get involved in policy, but there's a difference between policy and politics. The thing that has disturbed me over the past few years is that political persuasions and ideologies have conflicted with good scientific public health principles. Dr. Fauci, did any U.S. president ever say something in a public setting that made you slap your forehead in amazement? <laughs> uh, Scott, yes. In fact, I think I did do that. Unfortunately, it became very well known. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I don't want to... Take us back to that, if you could. First of all, I, I want to say that during the Trump administration, I was put in a position to have to push back on things that were said publicly in front of me that just were not true, were not based on scientific data, on evidence. I just could not stay silent on that, and I was put in the uncomfortable position of having to publicly disagree with that. Uh, I felt I just needed, because of my own preservation of my own personal and professional integrity, as well as what I consider my primary responsibility, and that is to the American public. When you say put you in the uncomfortable position, may I ask an uncomfortable position or exactly the position somebody with your title should be in? Well, it's both, Scott, because A, it's the position I should be in, and people should do that. And I did it. You know, it cost me a lot of waves of hostility against me, which I'm still feeling now to this date. But when I said uncomfortable, I mean, you know, I don't like the idea that there's conflict between 
the highest office of the land and, and scientific facts. Let me take you back a, a bit to the days of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And you were criticized early on for not being responsive enough, although I was able to interview Larry Kramer, uh, the activist who in time saluted you. What are the lessons of that time that you think can help us now? Well, that was a very important period of time, Scott, because what it did is really change the paradigm. We have to listen to the people who we are trying to help. And when we finally listened, it became very clear to me that what they were saying made perfect sense. And that's why we changed the way we interact with the constituency groups when you have a disease like HIV. To be plain, a lot of the people who protested at that time felt the government wasn't approving what were still designated as experimental treatments and therapies quickly enough to help the people who were dying then. That is correct. And that's when we became more flexible and there was a concern that it would interfere with the integrity of the science, and it did not. You made some reference to the um, sometimes very intense personal criticism you've received. Can you help us understand what it's been like for you and your family? Obviously, it has been uncomfortable and stressful. I have threats upon my life that were credible threats resulting in the jailing and confinement of a couple of people. My family have been harassed and threatened. That to me is, is just, it is an expression and a reflection on the profound, I believe, unreasonable divisiveness in our society. Why you would threaten a public health official, a physician and a scientist who's doing nothing but trying to preserve and protect the health of the American public is a very sorry testimony upon where our society is at this particular time. Do you hear from people who say that something of which you were a part helped save their lives or the life of a loved one? Yeah, I would say, Scott, that when you look quantitatively at the number of people who are very grateful for the work that I and my colleagues have done, that the positive feedback I get overwhelmingly outstrips the negative, I mean, like 10 to 1, despite the loudness and the megaphone given to the other side by social media, it looks like they dominate and they don't come near to dominating. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you, Scott. Thank you for having me. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition, WBUR's Anthony Brooks scored an exclusive, the first local media interview with Governor-elect Maura Healey since the election. That's coming up on Weekend Edition Saturday. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org wbur. And Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston. Holiday catalogs and book recommendations for every reader. PorterSquareBooks.com.
I'm Luis Chiavoni with these headlines. The infrastructure of Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv, and three other major urban areas are struggling. After a major Russian assault yesterday, Kharkiv, Zaporizhia, and Kriviri also took heavy fire. At least three people died. As the winter sets in, influenza and the respiratory virus known as RSV are spreading nationally, presenting a triple epidemic threat along with COVID-19 during the year-end holiday period. Wintry weather has arrived across much of the U.S. A major nor'easter with snow and heavy rain arrived last night in the northeastern states. Forecasters this week called for significant snow accumulation across the Plains states. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Fallout continues from the spectacular collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Its founders in jail. The U.S. has charged them with massive fraud, and now there are new concerns about another crypto trading platform. NPR's David Gurra joins us. David, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Scott. Tell us uh, about Binance. Am I pronouncing it correctly? You are. Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange by volume, and some people started to worry this week about the shape it's in. I'll give you a bit of backstory here. Binance was an early investor in FTX, then it became one of FTX's main rivals, and when FTX was falling apart, Binance offered FTX a lifeline, only to take it back at the last minute. And I bring all that up because we've learned how intertwined these crypto companies are. Lee Reiners teaches cryptocurrency law at Duke University. So not only are they connected in terms of, you know, making loans to one another or holding, you know, the same assets, but oftentimes, you know, one crypto firm is invested in another crypto firm. And part of the reason for this is they want to keep contagion from spreading when there's trouble. But the smallness of this world is contributing to a crisis of confidence. On Tuesday, Binance customers got spooked and withdrew more than a billion dollars worth of assets from the platform in one day. Binance had to freeze some withdrawals temporarily. They haven't forgotten the bank run, basically, on FTX, Scott, before it collapsed. And how worried are investors and customers about Binance? Well, there's a lot of anxiety right now. FTX's implosion has had everyone on edge, and this week a report about a government investigation into Binance rattled its customers. But Binance is pushing back on that report and on this comparison with what happened to FTX. It blamed that temporary freeze of withdrawals on a technical issue, and the head of Binance said the spike in withdrawals was business as usual. And in a separate statement, the company was emphatic it managed those withdrawals with ease. Another consequence of the collapse of FTX is customers want reassurance their money is where it's supposed to be, and it's not going to disappear. And now crypto companies are going to have a harder time doing that. 
Several crypto exchanges were putting together what are known as proofs of reserve. These are basically showing they have enough money on hand to back deposits. But on Friday, the accounting firm Mazars, which reviewed many of these reports, the same firm that dumped the Trump organization as a client earlier this year, by the way, said it had stopped working with all of crypto, including Binance. So that's left them without this respected company to vouch for them, essentially. David, I mean, if you got a gift card this holiday season in crypto, how should you react? How bad is the situation? It's bad, Scott. It's it's really bad right now, especially because this is such a tangled web of companies. A number of experts with whom I spoke, including Lee Reiners at Duke, said FTX's implosion was a major setback for crypto. You have a situation like FTX, and it's going to take time before you know anyone believes anything that the crypto industry and these crypto CEOs have to say. This has turned off a lot of people from buying crypto, and companies have got a lot of work to do to get people to trust them again. You know, for most of this year, we've been in what's called a crypto winter. It's a deep, prolonged downturn. Bitcoin, for instance, Scott, has fallen more than 60% this year. And so far, there are no signs of any kind of recovery. Can we take heart, at least, from, from the quick government response before crypto became more widely used? It's been quite forceful, and that does stand out. We've seen complaints from the two big financial regulators and criminal charges against Sam Bankman-Fried. The other bright spot is that for most people, this is just a wild story to follow and nothing more. Contagion has not spread to the banking system or the broader economy. And that's something the Federal Reserve emphasized in a statement after a big meeting on Friday with the Treasury Secretary and with top financial regulators. NPR's David Gura, thanks so much. Thank you. Republicans gained 10 seats to control the House in these last elections, but many Democrats were elected for the first time. And they replaced outgoing members of their own party or won a seat from Republicans. Two district in the Pacific districts in the Pacific Northwest flipped after years of one party control and each for different reasons. Tori Brennelson and Joni Auden Land of Oregon Public Broadcasting explain. Hey mom, they called it. <laughs> in November, Marie Glusenkamp Perez pulled off the biggest upset of the 2022 midterms. The Democrat from Washington State had seemingly come out of nowhere and flipped a district former President Donald Trump had won twice. Suddenly, she and her campaign manager scrambled to stage a nondescript Airbnb for national media interviews. Um, CNN, Wolf Blitzer, would like to talk to you in the next 30 minutes, so... Why don't we do? We're going to do it. We're going to be right there. And so from the living room, uh, she completed a congressional run barely anyone saw coming. She only entered the race in February and finished a distant fourth in fundraising before the primaries. Then she faced Trump acolyte Joe Kent in the general, who had just unseated a six-term Republican incumbent. So how did the auto shop owner from Skamania County pull it off? Since we got here, we've installed much better air filters, a four-post lift. Um, the machine shop is new. Like any politician, Glusenkamp Perez tries to embody her district. Here in the southwestern part of the state, union shops in timber and aluminum used to carry Democrats. And the 34-year-old is the closest to a trades worker whom Democrats backed in at least a decade. She's unafraid to say both parties have hurt the working class and rural communities. And that feels like home to voters. That feels like the representation they want right now in D.C. Being a newcomer also freed her from political baggage. She contrasted with Kent, a rising star in Trump's GOP. 
He campaigned on relitigating the 2020 election and other unproven far-right ideas. And I ran against a guy who had an R after his name, but did not reflect the values of most conservatives I know. Among them were tens of thousands who still supported the incumbent, Jamie Herrera Butler, even after she broke Republican ranks to impeach Trump. Mel Camerath from the industrial town of Kalama was on the fence until late October. When she sided with Glusenkamp Perez, she volunteered to knock on doors too. She saw many of her neighbors feeling lost. We have the Democrats who are always going to vote Democrat leader. And then we had this special middle group of people who had lost their candidate in Jamie. Glusenkamp Perez outperformed the Democratic candidate for Senate thanks to gains in the district's rural towns, which she hopes to represent in the other Washington. I'm going to be a tireless advocate, working with people across the aisle, anywhere I can find, to pass bills that get us moving in the right direction. She's trying to be realistic about committee assignments. She hopes she can help small businesses and timber. In southwest Washington, I'm Troy Brennelson. And I'm Joni Auden-Land, a few hours south in Bend, Oregon. For the first time in 28 years, a Republican has won Oregon's 5th Congressional District. Lori Chavez-Dreamer, a former small-town mayor, will take control of the seat in what has been a huge pickup for Republicans this year. Chavez-Dreamer says she adopted an aggressive campaign strategy that took her all over the large district, which was heavily redrawn in 2020. I wanted to make sure that people knew who I was. People knew me in Happy Valley where I had served as mayor, but they didn't often know me as we headed south or over to Central Oregon, so I made sure I spent time there. Chavez Dreamer rarely mentioned former President Trump and often avoided discussing conservative social issues such as abortion. She says she will seek a seat on the House Transportation Committee. Part of her success was painting her opponent, Democrat Jamie McLeod Skinner, as a progressive outsider, like in this campaign ad. Take away the props, the cheap slogans, and the empty promises. You're just left with an out-of-touch San Francisco-area politician pretending to be Oregonian. Redistricting greatly changed the shape of the district. This new 5th district is politically diverse and huge. It includes liberal strongholds like Portland and Bend, combined with conservative suburbs and rural mountain towns. The district leans slightly blue, but many have noted that Democrats in the area tend to lean more moderate. That could favor Republicans as they fight to maintain control of the seat. Uh, the Democrats lost. <laughs> Should have had me as uh, the standard bearer. We would have won. That is Kurt Schrader, the outgoing representative for Oregon's 5th District. He's been in that seat as a moderate Democrat for 12 years. However, he lost his primary to a more progressive challenger. Schrader got the backing of some big-name Democrats, namely President Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. But his moderate positions cost him support on the local level. Chavez Dreamer, however, says transcending party lines can work to her advantage. I think I'm still going to be a good fit for this district based on the years of dedication and experience that I have put in and really changing the way we represent Oregonians. Soon, though, she'll have to start campaigning for the 2024 election. Much like Washington's third district, maintaining control of such a tight seat is hardly a guarantee. For NPR News, I'm Joni Auden-Land in Bend, Oregon. And I'm Troy Brennelson in southwest Washington. And now, it's time for sports! Excuse me, let me get hold of myself. World Cup final tomorrow. Will France repeat or will Lionel Messi 
Messi capped his career with the Cup. Joined now from Doha by NPR's Tom Goldman. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Okay, hit me. I'm ready. All right. I'm holding on. As Go we ahead. say in our Chicago French Chinese family, <laughs> Allez le bleu. But Argentina is favored, aren't they? Yeah, slightly. But I'm going with you and the family, but maybe not as loud. Um, I, th I think France. Yeah, keep it down. You're in Doha, man. Yeah. I know, really. I think France has more good players beyond the dazzling 23 year old. Uh, Kylian Mbappe, you have the versatile Antoine Griezmann, the crafty yep. veteran Olivier Giroud, you have goalkeeper Hugo Lloris. How's my French so far? He was an absolute <laughs> wall versus Morocco yeah. in the semifinal one. <laughs> yeah, like I know, France, but go ahead, yes. Yeah, France has been doing this without several of its top players who were injured before the tournament, but the French are so deep. They have one of the world's best development systems yeah. for new talent. And they have been able to plug the, the, the holes French are and deep keep people winning. too, uh, uh, Tom. I just want that noted, okay? The French are very deep as human beings. But go ahead, yes. Can I finish? Can I finish? <laughs> All right, you're there. The they've got this great development system. They've got the, you know, for the new talent, and they've been able to plug the holes and keep winning even when they've been outplayed. And they have been at times during the tournament. Scott, it pains me to predict the great Argentine Lionel Messi will get this far and not win his yeah. first World Cup in what he says is his last World Cup. All I can say, if he does win, I will apologize on this program for my impertinence in doubting the great Messi. Yes, well, he's a great player. Uh, how great were the matches in this World Cup? It they were great. Upsets, thrills. The last week of the group stage stands out in particular with with all its nail biters, in the end, there was a familiar meeting in the final, a European power versus a South American power. Here's a little factoid you can use to impress people. Mm -hmm. 85 of the 88 semifinalists in the history of the Men's World Cup are from those two continents. But if you look at the totality of the tournament, there were some plates shifting underneath. Certainly, Saudi Arabia's upset of Argentina was an eye-opener. And then, of course, Morocco's historic run yeah. to the semifinals, first African to get there. With the tournament exploding from 32 teams to 48, next time there are going to be a lot of smaller new countries emboldened, I think, by what the so-called little guys did at this World Cup. Yeah. Uh, Qatar paid dearly uh, fines, construction costs, <laughs> cash in envelopes to get this World Cup. Did it show the world the face they wanted? You know, they believe they did get their money's worth, um, the, to over $200 billion. They created this new world in Doha with huge, colorful, lit buildings, a new subway system, highways, seven brand new stadiums. The compact nature of it was fantastic for fans who could easily get to so many matches. The event has worked, and the cherry on top for Qatar is that the two superstars in the final, Mbappe and Messi, both play for their clubs, they yeah. both play their club soccer at Paris Saint-Germain, which is owned by Qatar Sports Investment. But there was controversy, and the world, the world did pay attention at least for a few minutes to that too, didn't they? It sure did. You know, the beer sales being banned at the last minute, detaining people for wearing rainbow gear in support of LGBTQ rights, a constant spotlight on mistreatment of migrant workers, especially the ones who built the World Cup infrastructure. You know, we talked about it, um, whether things will change now that the, the, the tournament's over and the circus is packing up, hard to say. Yeah. NPR's Tom Golden, thanks very much, and uh, enjoy, enjoy covering the match. Um, Thank you so and much. Thanks for all your fine reporting from there.
And I've I run out of things to thank you for, but in any event. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, I, I, do we have any time? Oh, I'm sorry, we run out of time, Tom Goldman. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The showers are moving out with just clouds in store for this afternoon around Boston after yesterday's drenching rain. Thanks for spending some time with us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. My colleague, WBUR senior political reporter Anthony Brooks, picked up the first extended local interview with Governor-elect Maura Healey since she was elected last month. Healey talked about the transition and her vision for the future of Massachusetts. Here's Anthony. To say that Maura Healey is busy these days is an understatement. She's busy with two transitions, her own move from attorney general to governor, along with her running mate Kim Driscoll, as well as Andrea Campbell's transition to succeed her as the state's top law enforcement official. This is an office of hundreds of people, and we want to make sure that AG-elect Campbell is well set up. And we also have this important transition that, that Kim Driscoll and I are making to the administration. So it's an exciting time, and yes, it's a busy time, but we'll be ready to go day one. Healy says her first priority is assembling her team. She's also named Matthew Gorskowitz as her budget chief. And she's looking forward to making good on a long list of campaign promises, from creating a green technology corridor to making life and housing more affordable. I want Massachusetts to be a place where if you're born here, you can stay here with endless opportunity. If you're a company, you can grow here, you can start up here. Most immediately, though, we've got to focus on affordability, and that means driving down the cost of housing by increasing housing production. It's a long list of promises that would challenge any new governor. Healy faces the added challenge of succeeding Charlie Baker, one of the country's most popular governors. Healy, a Democrat, says there are aspects of Baker's leadership that she will try to embrace, even though he's a Republican. Governor Baker was a great governor. I appreciate his leadership. I appreciated the partnership that we had over the last eight years. One thing I always appreciated about his leadership was his ability to listen to a range of folks and then ultimately have to make a decision. What's the most useful piece of advice he's given you about being governor? Well, we've had a lot of conversations, and something that he uh, has said to me and stressed is something I believe in deeply, um, and that is getting outside of the office, you know, making sure that you are in touch on the ground with people across this state. You are a governor for the entire state, and that is something that I take very seriously. Healy also talked about the historic nature of her new role. She was the state's first woman and first openly gay person elected governor. With diversity of leadership, we're going to have better laws and policies because more voices, more lived experiences will be at the table. That is so important, and it will make us that much stronger as a society. And it also is important in this time where, unfortunately, there have been some forces around the country looking to take us back when it comes to protecting a woman's right to choose and reproductive freedom, when members of the LGBTQ community have been under attack. I'm really proud that Massachusetts stood strong. What are you going to say, um, what's the, going to be the sort of central message of your inaugural address? I've certainly thought about it, and you will hear more about that on January 5th. Can you give us just a hint? I mean, what's the, what's the big theme you want to hit? 
I think people are, uh, should hear themes sounding in teamwork, in optimism, and in urgency. I think Massachusetts should continue to lead. We're a state that punches above its weight. And in this time, particularly nationally, I want us to be out there, to be leading. Governor-elect Maura Healey, she'll take office January 5th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Healy is building her cabinet. Yesterday, she named Pat Tutwiler as her secretary of education. Tutwiler is a former high school principal who served as superintendent of Lynn Public Schools. Healy told WBUR that Tutwiler has the experience to lead the state's public education system. I'm terrifically excited about his energy, about the urgency that he brings to public education and to our young people. He knows uh, that so many have suffered and disparities have, have grown during this COVID time, and I know that he brings the energy and the commitment to getting it done. Healy still has many more cabinet picks to come, and WBUR will be covering the governor-elect's decisions as she prepares to take office next month. Funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Huntington Theater, give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. HuntingtonTheater.org slash gifts. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, Put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A literary institution in London will close its doors at the end of the year. Alsaki Books opened in 1978. It's the first Arabic-language bookstore in the city and a hub for those who craved a slice of home and a refuge for free expression. But the world's tough economy has prevailed. Salwa Gaspard co-founded Alsaki Books along with her husband, Andre. She joins us now, along with her daughter, Lynn, who helps run the shop. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Salwa Gaspard, what's that name mean, Alsaki? is a water seller so which shows this name because there was a very famous painting by Jawad Salim of the of a water seller 
and we thought it would be very nice for a bookshop to be like a culture seller as well. Well, and people who thirst for knowledge could go there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And why was it important to you to open uh, an Arabic language bookstore in London? As many Arabs were coming to London at the end of the 70s, it was a big boom for the oil industry in the Arab world. They were coming in masses and uh, during the civil war in Lebanon, they stopped going to Beirut. So we had to recreate almost a cultural center, you know, to replicate what we used to have in Lebanon, freedom of expression, freedom of reading, all the culture. And that's why the bookshop started. We should explain, of course, you were um, from Lebanon. Your family runs a, a publishing house there in, in Lebanon. Uh, Lynn Gaspard, what was it like to grow up around this bookstore? It was wonderful. <laughs> it was my life. Our school bus would drop us off uh, at the doors of the bookshop every afternoon, and we'd spend all our afternoons, my sister and I, amongst the books and playing hide-and-seek. The basement, to us at the time, just felt like a maze full of shelves of books, <laughs> rows and rows of dusty bookshelves. <laughs> oh. My mum uh, put us to good use, you know, and she used to make make us stuff envelopes with their catalogues. <laughs> but we loved it. Aww. And as my mum said the other day, you know, my parents moved here from Lebanon during the war and we grew up here and we didn't have, you know, blood relatives here. We had our bookshop relatives, I guess, and that whole community, that wider sort of literary community around us. And that was family and that was home. Let me ask you, both of you, but beginning with Salwa uh, Gaspar, to, to take us back to 1988. You carried uh, the Satanic Verses, which I don't have to uh, remind you, had been banned in a number of places. And what happened to your store? Uh, we were selling the book and uh, very naively displaying it in the window as well. Hmm. So we had the window broken. And then we started receiving threats that they will burn the bookshop. So I called the police and asked them, we are receiving mm -hmm. threats, what shall we do? And the policeman was very pragmatic. He told me, are you making so much money from the book that you would risk your bookshop? Why don't you just hide it at the back and sell some copies to whoever asks for it? If you are sure it's not a dangerous customer. I, I guess that's a very, very practical solution, it's isn't so it? so British, you know. <laughs> but it was important to you. Um, well, you you were opponents of censorship, and you think that's important to yes. what a great bookstore is. I mean, uh, many books were banned, and many authors were banned uh, in the Arab world. And we had every kind of books, if it was, you know, of of a good quality, of course, academic quality. We wanted just, you know, to be fair to everyone and, and to, to be free, not, not to obey any, any tendency, nothing. And people, many of our customers would visit from abroad, from the Arab world, from the region, and they would come in to the shop and say, where, where are all the banned books? <laughs> <laughs> so we often joke that we should have a banned book section. <laughs> well, good for you. Why can't such a great, beloved place keep its doors open? And I know the price of real estate in London is crazy. 
it's, it's mainly the price of the books uh, coming from Lebanon because uh, our stock is mainly Arabic books. Yeah. The price of Arabic books from Beirut has gone up in price incredibly. Anything planned for the last days of the shop that you can share with us? Uh, it's like we've never seen so many Arabs in London. The shop is packed at the moment. Yeah, it's been packed. It's quite overwhelming to see just how many people this is affecting and they're coming and saying goodbye to us. And it's it's wonderful. Um, also heartbreaking, of course. And we're having a yeah, little... The most difficult thing for me is when I see people taking a picture of the window and of our sign. Like it's... Uh the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben or whatever. Because it was home for these people too. That's the thing, you know. It was Saki, the bookshop, um, for decades has been a landmark. And, you know, you'd meet Arabs in London and they would say, when I when my family visits from abroad, I take them to Big Ben and to Al-Saki Books. <laughs> and I think this is what, you know, people are going to miss. Um, it's iconic. You've provided a lot to a lot of people, but what are you going to do now? I have no idea what I will do later. And uh, I don't know. Go on holiday, re re read some books. <laughs> <laughs> you put your feet up. You deserve it after all these years. Visit the countries you've read about. Yeah. Salwa and Lynn Gaspard, who own Alsaki Books in London. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. With the price of fuel rising so high in Europe and the United Kingdom this year, a British baker is trying to help. Ed Hamilton Truitt owns Brickyard Bakery in Gisborough in North Yorkshire, England. He's decided to open a warming room on the floor above his bakery's large oven. He knew elders and pensioners in the area were on tight budgets and thought the extra heat given off by his oven might help. So he fitted out a sitting room upstairs with tea and coffee, cozy chairs, newspapers and magazines for anybody who wants to come by and get warm. No radio? This month he's also making his oven available for anyone who'd like to make a holiday cake but is wary about the cost of fuel. A traditional Christmas fruit cake can take between four and six hours to bake, so Mr. Hamilton Truitt is bringing back a custom from the Middle Ages, the community oven. Anybody who wants a cake baked can bring their batter in a baking pan. He'll cook it in his oven for free. And if people can't get to the bakery, he's offered to drop by and pick up any unbaked cake on a Friday and deliver it back nicely cooked on Monday. It's a great recipe for holiday cheer. Phoenix is rising up again. The indie band from France has been together for three decades. They've won a Grammy and have now released their seventh album, Alpha Zulu. It showcases their spellbinding and ageless synth pop. Thomas Mars is the lead singer of Phoenix and joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. I have been told that you recorded this album in the uh, Palace du Louvre, close to Napoleon's throne. Yes. That was the last thing we would see before entering the studio. This throne is very special because it had its imperial eagles removed to be replaced by chestnuts. 
so that the Republic was always stronger than the, the monarchy or the imperial power of Napoleon. So it's semi-comical, I would say. Your album, um, Alpha Zulu, Alpha Zulu is an airplane instruction. It's very urgent. It is urgent. It is. Um, I was on a small plane. On those small airplanes, sometimes when you're on the co-pilot seat with the same headphones I'm wearing right now, and the flight had turbulence, and I would hear Alpha Zulu, Alpha Zulu, drop altitude. And I guess these stayed with me. I think the way we make music, it's a little bit like therapy for us. Uh, it's the four of us in a room. We don't really write anything before we meet. It's mostly stream of consciousness. It's the traumas and the good moment, the good memories we have, sort of the DNA of, of our music. But we did grow up together and we did, uh, we know each other since we we're very young, you know, so we don't really have to talk when we make an album. Three guys growing up together in Versailles, outside of Paris. How did you meet each other? How did you begin to make music together? Versailles is um, a world where music is still in the 18th century, I would say. It's trapped in the past, so it's, it's a little bit like growing up in a museum, growing up in Versailles. There's no room for anything new because it disturbs the past. It's not welcome. Well, it's a tourist attraction, isn't it? It is. I refused to go inside the palace for a while because I've mostly enjoyed the gardens when I was a teenager. And to me, you could sneak, climb a small wall, and you'd go at night in the gardens. You could be bathed in the beautiful gardens and symmetry and luxury, calm and volupté, as uh, the poet says, uh, of the gardens. So how did the three of you meet? and begin to make music together. We met at school. There are two brothers in the band. We were three friends, and we were the only ones appreciating music. There was no place to play music live because there were not really any crowds. So we started falling in love with recording music. We bought an eight-track recorder. We were in my parents' basement. Uh, we went to school together. At recess, we would talk about music. We we would share our record collections, we would share everything, and um, that's how, yeah, that's how we met recording and producing music that was our first love. winter solstice. There was a great loss in your personal life while you were making this album, wasn't there? I mean, not to get into too much detail, but my bandmates lost parents and we had, we lost Philippe Zdar, who's a collaborator and our producer on many records and who was a, a figure of the French music scene since its beginning. 
anything that came out of France that was good, he had something to do with. We started to record the first song to this album three days after his funeral. So he stayed with us all the time while making this record. And um, now that we are touring this album, singing the songs like we think of him even more. Um, let me ask you now about a song, My Elixir. What put this song in your mind? This song was a combination of two things. One was it had something very pure and simple that reminded me almost of a Richie Valens song that had a lot of vibrato and, and something that was very pure and then somehow we used all these filters and techniques that made it sound modern somehow. The song is mostly about exile because we, mm -hmm. whether we're on tour away from our families or, or our families or, or away from from home this song is has that feeling that you can only enjoy those moments as long as you know that there's a home for you that is still there versailles is a city like this that is trapped in the past and it's been the same it does not evolve mm. you know in 500 years it will be i think it will look the same that's reassuring when you're an adult that's a source of fear when you're teenager. I mean, you're alive. You keep growing. You keep changing. That's what's interesting to us. I think it's the same with music. Every album has to be something new. Uh, as soon as we find a recipe, we're not interested to do the same thing. You know, in the beginning, people were upset that we would change shape so much. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Thomas Mars is lead singer of the band Phoenix, their latest Alpha Zulu. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Happy holidays, whatever your holidays, to everybody. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp 
using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Some rain around this morning. Highs today in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College. Committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. And the Peabody Essex Museum asking, what's the connection between Hello Kitty and 16th century Dutch furniture? You can solve this and other mysteries at PEM, a place for curious art lovers of all ages. Tickets and more at PEM.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Every week on our show, we apply the tools of journalism to stories that are so small and personal, journalists normally would not cover them. It was my forged signature, and it was my boyfriend's handwriting. Or we look at stories that are big, Refugees, school segregation in America, the split in the Republican Party. Climbing out from the smoking ruin and say, anybody else alive around here? I find surprising personal stories there, too. This American Life. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.